Welcome to B2B Marketing Needs Don Draper, brought to you by True. For too long, B2B has lacked creativity and inspiration, leading to alarming declines in effectiveness and marketing departments being slowly devalued more and more within their organizations. We're here to change that by getting under the skin of what it really means to be a highly effective B2B marketer. We'll be speaking to some of the brightest minds in the industry to discuss what they're doing to be a bit more, well, Don Draper. And now, here's your host, Stuart Black. Joining us today on B2B Marketing Needs Don Draper is James McCarthy, Director of Product Marketing at SimilarWeb, now public company and a unicorn, James leads the positioning and messaging across their products to market. Prior to SimilarWeb, James was CMO at Exonar and held senior roles at Microsoft across both B2B and B2C products. So James McCarthy, welcome to the show. Hi Stuart, great to see you and catch up after all this time. Um, thanks for inviting me along. Pleasure to have you. So firstly then, what does being a bit more Don Draper mean to you? Well, Don Draper is a character, I guess, a quite a complex character with, a, I think, a difficult past. I think, if I remember rightly, he stole a dead man's identity. We've all been there, surely. Well, yeah, not so much. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think, <laughs> I think what it means to me is that as a result, um, he was kind of an emotional character and he was able to channel that from a marketing perspective into what he did. Right. And that enabled him to me be more emotive, maybe. Um, it changed his perspective on how he viewed the audience. I think it made him a better marketer potentially as a result. I think that's the idea anyway. To be in touch with those emotions, absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk about brand then. You said uh, to me in our pre-interview, investing in brand is staying true to your purpose. Can you unpack that for us? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the question came, if I remember, was was around kind of whether small companies should invest heavily. And I think the implication is that that investment is financially. So do they write a check for a big chunk of money? Um, and I think that, you know, investment in brand is about much more than just the financial investment. Um, it's about, you know, obviously who you want to be and how you want to be perceived by your audiences now and in the future. You're building a much bigger thing rather than just promoting mm -hmm. So I think investing in brand is as much about staying true to your purpose or the bigger picture than it is about dollars. So what do I mean by that? Well, I think small companies in particular make little decisions every day about what to say, what to build, what to launch, how to promote, which campaign to run, etc. And the temptation is to do that in a very short term way. So just say whatever you need to say in order to reach the objectives of that campaign, rather than positioning it within how you want to be perceived longer term. And so I would say every time you make a decision where you go for that longer term purpose, you align what you're doing to that longer term purpose, even if it's tactically quite difficult, you're then investing in your brand. And I think small companies, all companies should do that all the time because the accumulative effect of those little decisions and aligning everything in the straight direction is, uh, is an investment that over time builds the value of the brand. And then, of course, at a certain point, you become big enough, you've got product market fit, you're ready to actually scale, then the investment may well be much more financial. Mm. And what's uh, the purpose at SimilarWeb then? Yeah, SimilarWeb's an amazing company, actually. And, and uh, we, our founder is, is an Israeli guy called Or Offer. And his purpose is very interesting because I think if you asked him what it is, he probably wouldn't recognize it, but I see it really strongly. Mm. Um, essentially, the story goes that uh, roughly 10 
10 to 15 years ago, his mum was running a jewellery business, the family jewellery business in Israel, and all got involved in trying to help his mum promote that business. And it was really, really difficult for him to work out what the other jewellery competitors were doing in the market online and how they were winning, how they were grabbing market share within that space and how he was going to help his mum to be able to break into that market. And so effectively, he started building a product that gathers data from multiple sources, brings it together and gives you a picture of what your competition is doing. In fact, what individuals are doing online and, and where they're spending their time and money. And that's how SimilarWeb was born as a concept. Um, and of course, his purpose was really strong to help his mum, essentially. And of course, then realized that it had wider implications. It was actually quite a big idea in the end. And that was the, the sort of the starting of the company. But if you asked him what his purpose was, he probably wouldn't remember or wouldn't think of it like that. But I think actually that's a very strong purpose. Yeah, absolutely. And SimilarWeb's gone on a, an amazing journey, uh, scaling without investing too much in brand building specifically. So at what stage should a scale-up start investing in brand? Yeah, you're right. I mean, we're a product company, um, first and foremost, a, a SaaS product company. Um, I think, you know, I, I would say we're, if, we, if we're using the word investing in terms of financially, um, rather than the things I was talking about before, yeah. then I think I've learned from bitter experience, really, that um, you can't really scale up and start investing in brand at scale until you properly have product market fit. Right. So when you've demonstrated that you can quickly and easily solve a specific problem for your audience in a profitable way, and that audience is big enough and sizable enough, and they all need that problem solving, then you have product market fit. And at that point, it just becomes about scaling that. Um, so I think where I've seen companies and I've been involved in propositions and companies and products that haven't scaled right or where investment was put in, but they didn't scale as a result, it was because fundamentally there wasn't a product market fit. And B2B companies generally don't do much above the line advertising, preferring to be highly targeted instead. What are the benefits and drawbacks to being hyper-targeted? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in general, B2B buyers are a much smaller audience. So, you know, if you looked in the UK and you're building a, a B2B software product, for example, um, you might have a thousand people in the country that could buy your product, not a million or five million or 10 million or whatever. And for that reason, going above the line is very, very expensive way to target a thousand people. And so B2B brands generally go to buy data, to um, directly try and target those individuals. Um, I think the drawback of that is that the brand itself, I think individuals are still quite driven by brand, you know, even a B2B buyer. And the danger is you come to them at a transactional level. So you target them in your emails with an offer or a proposition rather than driving awareness and communicating your purpose first. And it leads to a one-off interaction where you're pressured to sell rather than the benefit of above the line where you have the ability to touch somebody multiple times, perhaps in multiple channels in different ways, and then drive perception for what you're doing and encourage and attract those individuals to follow you as a brand. And then you sell your products after that. So I think the drawback is you've got a small number of people, you tend to hit them from a sales perspective, rather than having the opportunity to build your brand and awareness around it. 
And when should B2B businesses invest in above-the-line advertising then? What's the right time? I think the right time is when they, they need reach um, and scale. So, you know, examples of that would include companies that have maybe a freemium model. They kind of have a mass market model where they attract users for free and then they attract B2B buyers to buy that and maybe integrate it into their um, professional, you know, productivity apps would be a great, really great example. So if you look at Zoom, um, Zoom has a small number of buyers for their enterprise product, but they have obviously a huge potential audience. So I think if you've got product market fit and you have the the ability to do it and you have a freemium model that attracts people for free and then gets them hooked and then you have kind of product-led growth where they buy from a B2B perspective, but actually you're monetizing something that had a very big audience, um, then you know you could you could definitely argue that that's the time to drive above the line because you need that freemium driver to your business. And you were saying before that you're a huge fan of storytelling, going back to Don Draper's emotional connections. How do the best B2B brands tell compelling stories that are full of emotion? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I have a, a particular favorite um, model for this, for storytelling within B2B, and it's actually okay. Donald Miller's um, story brand approach. Uh, it's Donald Miller, not Donald Draper. Um <laughs> And he's written a couple of books here and there around how essentially all movies and great stories have been, you know, of effectively the same. I think there's seven types of story, aren't there, or something like that, right, um, right. if I remember it correctly. And if you break them down, he's got quite a simple sort of seven stage, I think, methodology around how you tell a great story. Um, and what it does quite nicely, I think, is it sweeps up a few of the very common things that B2B um, marketers do wrong in terms of going to market. And it's this kind of rational versus emotional thing that you're alluding to. Um, if you look at Donald Miller's framework, then um, you position the hero, first of all, as being the customer, not mm -hmm. the brand. So quite mm -hmm. a lot of B2B companies think they're the hero and they're coming to bring a product to market that everyone should and will love. And so they focus on what they do, their features and functions, rather than the person they're trying to solve the problem for which is okay. the hero. So what Donald Miller starts with is introducing the hero, which of course is how every story generally starts. Um, that hero wants to achieve something. Um, the thing that they want to achieve is better if it's, if it's more emotionally driven. Um, so it's more on Maslow's hierarchy, if you know what I mean, rather than functional. They're trying to achieve something that they really want to do, whatever that is. And then you introduce the villain, and the villain is the big problem uh, that's blocking them from getting what they want. And, and the villain obviously isn't painted as a monster. Um, the villain is, is that thing that's preventing them from moving on, that well-known problem that, that stops them from reaching their solution. And then you introduce yourself, the brand, as the guide rather than the hero. Um, and even by that simple little switch of, if you think of a B2B website, B2B brand's website, positioning themselves as the hero, if you just swap that round, position that site for the hero for the customer, position yourself as the guide, the trusted authority that's going to help them, but not tell them what to do, then what you're beginning to do, and I'm not going to step through the whole story brand framework, but the point is you're just doing some very, very simple things to make sure that the communication that you're creating and the story that you're telling is about the person reading the story, and they can see themselves in that rather than about you, the company. And then, of course, you can try and bring as much into that as possible in terms of what that hero wants and how you're going to be the brand 
that's going to help them achieve it. So there's some really simple things in there. I don't like uh, you know, marketing frameworks too much if you get too deep into them, but I think there's some simple little pivot points in storytelling enabled by the kind of Donald Miller type story brand type approach that I think is really, really useful. And, and how easy is it to follow those structures? Um, does it kind of conform all the way through or, or, or do you hit a point where it, you, you need to hit the logic elements? I think you, you do hit the logic. I and mean, I didn't want to go through the whole story brand approach. There's an element where the, the guide gives the hero the plan and the plan effectively is where you talk about your product. And right, you present okay. it in such a way as that it, it solves the problem, not in such a way that it has 101 features, which is you know one of the big mistakes. But what you're doing is you're helping the hero to overcome the villain and you're outlining the plan that they need to follow to make that happen. And that plan is using your product, essentially. Um, I think the, the other point you make there, though, is, is how rigid you have to be on that. And I think if you look at um, different ways in which you might articulate the story, so in an email or on a web page or in a video or whatever, then obviously you can't tell a story all of the time or it doesn't, it can't look like a story all the time. You can't go to your customers and consistently, you know, define a hero <laughs> um, and, and take them into kind of Jack and Nori storytelling space. So you can apply storytelling principles in a very, very brief piece of copy very effectively. It's just about how you're ordering the information. That's as simple as that. Got it. And who, and who does this well, in your opinion? Are there any examples where um, you, you've been inspired and thought that's a really great way of tackling something? Yeah, um, HubSpot have done it a lot. Um, I use that example quite a lot. Uh, if you've ever used HubSpot or been involved in HubSpot, they're obviously a CRM provider moving into kind of sales and service as well. Um, and a lot of B2B companies, of course, will, will understand HubSpot and what they do. Um, five or six years ago now, um, I was in a startup using HubSpot. And what was amazing about that is the amount of content they generated as the guide. So the amount of focus they put in on helping the hero, the customer, to really understand how to do their job um, and to be there to support them, to become the brand that really understands what that hero is trying to do. And then they applied that um, you know, across their website. They used storytelling very, very well in lots of assets. I have to tell you, I think it may have been diluted a little bit since, and I've seen less clarity from them um, since, but certainly they set out on the right path there. Um, and I see lots and lots of examples, um, and I see good examples, and I see bad examples every day. Monday.com are pretty good. Um, I see lots of bad examples I'm not going to mention. Um, but for me, you can see when an email is talking to the hero as the hero and when an email is not. And it's very, very quick. We all get dozens of marketing emails all the time, I'm constantly fishing them out of my inbox. And I will scan every email I see just to see how it's written. Um, right, okay. And some of them are brilliant and they clearly have that kind of storytelling logic. And it, it engages me in it because if I share that problem, you know, I know they're talking to me, so I can quickly identify, is this for me or not? Is it a problem that I face? Is it something that I want to achieve? And then are these guys the ones that understand that and therefore best place to help me solve the problem? And that orients me immediately, as storytelling does, into imagining myself in that position and it making sense to me or not. Um, I may then make the decision, I don't have that problem and I don't need that product. But that storytelling approach is a very, very, very fast way of cutting through the noise in marketing by allowing a human brain to go, okay, 
is this for me? Does it solve a problem I've got? Is it relevant? Are these people worth listening to? And that's for me the magic of it. And of course, you know the best movies that we all we all love uh, feature that hero's journey. So Star Wars, Back to the Future. You can you can run down the list of all your favorite films, and I'm sure they've got that kind of structure embedded in them. You, you do a lot of research yeah, the, at, the, at the cinema. I just hate watching films now. It's ruined my life. Um, <laughs> no, I, I I think I think you're absolutely right. And obviously, what you also have is you have amazing uh, multiple storylines running within good films as well. So you have different heroes, if you like, um, you know, and I'm not talking about necessarily going into Guardians of the Galaxy or whatever, where you've got kind of like lots and lots of subplots, but you can run multiple themes within, multiple stories within stories. That's very interesting to see when you look at a film and you kind of see a hero and then there's a another hero and then the guide and then the guide has another guide. And, you know, you can get sort of complexity around that, which of course in B2B marketing, you're never really going to apply. The other thing about films is that it really plays on the pivot points within the story. So um, normally there's this kind of, um, this kind of specter, the villain is, is cast as the thing that, um, if they overcome the villain, they're going to lead, lead to success. If they don't overcome the villain, there's a terrible failure. Mm-hmm. And the, emotionally, a film will build up the, the fear of failure mm-hmm. and the hope of victory in very, very clever ways. And that's why it's even more engaging than a B2B email will ever be, because it has the time to kind of embroil every step of that story you know, the hero, what they want, what the blocker is, the villain, who the guide is, what the plan is. And of course, what we always see is that before they meet the guide, they tend to fail first against the villain. So what tends to happen is you get the hero, they've got you, you understand what the problem is, and you're kind of rooting for them already. You're kind of going, oh, they've got to achieve that. They've got to, they've got to win, right? And then you see the villain, oh my God, the villain's there, this isn't going to work. And then normally what happens is the hero fails versus their first attempt with the villain. You know, they, 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 and it really articulates the failure. They end up in a heap, you know, in a, mm-hmm. in a ditch somewhere, you know, with smoke all around them. And so they really, you know, films are very, very good at like those key pivot points around the story really making the audience feel them. And I'm not for a moment going to stand here and say that B2B marketing has the opportunity <laughs> to get quite that emotive. Right. So for me, storytelling within B2B is about ordering of information in the right order so that the human is able to consume and understands why it's valuable. So they get into the story, but I'm not going to stand here and say that we're a Pixar substitute. But you can sprinkle a little bit of that fairy dust on, on everything you do. Absolutely. Sounds very logical when you break it down like that. Yeah. So when you were at Microsoft um, during your time there, what story were you telling? Um, we all have our ideas of the brand Microsoft stands for. Yeah. How did you control your own story there? Yeah, and it's actually a very, very interesting task because Microsoft's a massive brand and it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And then within that, you've got the little stovepiped, you know, a whole range of products. In fact, in some ways, Microsoft's a really bad example because it's so big and it has so many product lines. So it means different things to different people in different contexts. And then you've got the overarching Microsoft brand, which depending on your age will mean different things to you, um, right. depending on what stage of the tech, tech boom you kind of uh, remember or, or were influenced by. Um, I think the thing around Microsoft was always 
that this kind of brand level thing that we were always trying to attach to was making individuals realizing their potential. So making them being there to support the individual to realize their potential. That was really the, the biggest um, kind of overarching brand play that was there. So everything we tried to do when we were presenting our products was how the, the hero, the individual, um, could really do more with technology to achieve what they could achieve to their best ability. And in theory, that's what everything lined up to. Um, the challenge was that sometimes the product didn't necessarily align fully with that because it wasn't mature enough or whatever. It was always the objective. In a big amorphous company, it's very, very hard to make that happen in a really nimble way. Um, but that's certainly what, what drove a lot of decision-making. And going back to the beginning of the conversation, we were talking about like building brand and investing in brand. Um, and there's that, that trade-off between the short-term requirements of selling a product versus the long-term requirements of staying true to that purpose right. of enabling people to realize their potential. Um, and I've seen it work and not work, depending on what the situation was. When it didn't work and it, it boiled down to, um, you know, short-term objectives. So I was in the Windows mobile business for a long time at Microsoft. When, when Microsoft tried to build the mobile platform, um, fundamentally, you know, taking away from desktop and kind of getting into this new mobile world. And obviously that wasn't in the end ultimately successful for the business. Um, but at that time, some of the decisions we were making were the right decisions in terms of helping individuals to realize their potential through mobile. And sometimes decisions were made in terms of trying to drive market share against Apple and Android and BlackBerry and other players. And that's where you see the short term uh, lack of investment in brand versus the long-term big brand picture. Um, now, Binet and Carter in their paper say, uh, most people don't have strong beliefs about brands. In fact, most don't think about brands at all, at least not consciously. Perhaps that's controversial. We'll see what you think. I think you're absolutely right. Is that why rational messages have such little effect on people, do you think? I think most people don't have strong beliefs about brands. They have strong feelings about brands. Right, okay. And, and it's almost... I mean, there is a conscious, there'll be a conscious feeling that someone has about a brand, but actually I'm pretty sure that the subconscious feeling about a brand is probably more powerful. I think um, at the end of the day, people are emotional, you know, but we're all driven by our feelings one way or the other at every moment in the waking day. Um, we're not really driven by rational stuff, really. We like to think we are, but we're not particularly. I think the reason rational messages don't, necessarily resonate is because they don't help the individual to understand how it makes them better, how it solves a problem, how it takes them to a different place. And I think you process the information, it gives you a lot of cognitive load, but unless it aligns to what you're trying to do fundamentally and what makes you feel different, then that's why rational messages don't really have massive um, effect on people. Um, I think also, um, there's a big mistake that B2B um, companies make is that they think that B2B buyers buy rationally uh, rather than emotionally. I think most people realize that consumers buy at least partly emotionally um, based on a product they see and they just want it and it, it feels right and it fits well and, and they can see themselves in it and it projects the image they want to project or whatever else it may be. Um, I think people think that, no, don't worry, when we're marketing to B2B, we don't need to worry about that. We're marketing to professionals. So therefore, let's be really rational. Um, it makes complete sense rationally that they would then buy the product because, of course, 
it makes 100% sense. And then they, they can't work out why the individual doesn't engage with it. And I think that's because B2B buyers are also human beings. They are also driven emotionally. Um, some of the most effective B2B marketing I've seen focuses on what the individual B2B buyer or user gets out of using the product, buying the product emotionally in terms of their role, in terms of their position within the organization and all of that. So the best marketing I've seen from a B2B perspective elevates the individual that you're marketing to and enables them to see how they can be the better professional, the you know, the more successful person as a result of selecting your brand. Um, and that's that's where the magic happens. Mm. So let's go back to SimilarWeb. Um, maybe you can help us understand with so many different businesses that you're targeting, do you worry about alienating a core segment with your communications? And if so, how do you get around that issue? Yeah, it is, um, it is really difficult. And we have now five products and we've made sort of conscious efforts to think very carefully about how we're packaging up our product for audiences. Um, three of our products are specifically targeting a specific audience. Um, and as we go forwards, we're thinking really, really carefully about how we package up the elements of what we do to just speak to and just work for those individuals um, rather than having a platform approach, which is kind of you know generic and, and available for everybody because it, uh, for exactly the reasons you're talking about. Communications-wise, we're always trying to speak to the individual. Mm -hmm. We're trying to speak to the problem that we believe and know that they have, and we try to be consistent around that, and we try to position how we're going to help them solve the problem rather than promoting the myriad of features in a generic way to a broad audience. Um, so it's a constant battle, though. You have to constantly check yourself in terms of, being uh, focused and refined, not being broad, about really thinking about while we're communicating, what are we really communicating and resisting the temptation to go and push a feature or a benefit uh, instead, which of course is tempting sometimes when you're launching new stuff. So, so there's a lot of conscious effort in doing exactly what you describe. Very disciplined then, keeping that focus and not getting lost in the details that can perhaps come a bit later once people have bought in. Yeah, absolutely. And, and thinking about the story, just making sure that that story really resonates. And as you, as you write the story out for the individual that you're targeting, we often, we often story brand the, the, the brief, if you like, the marketing brief before we go and build the comms. And if you, if you construct that story correctly, it should make sense. And that helps you to make sure that you're talking to the hero and not heroes, you've got one hero for this story. Um, the discipline comes when, of course, as you say, you've got a broad set of audience. You don't want to communicate different things to every single player within that. How do you target them? How do you reach them? So it's a constant, it's a constant battle, but that's, I guess, the job, right? Absolutely. Um, and that leads me to my next question, which is how big a risk is that type of alienation that we're talking about? For example, Apple might market to millennials, but their ads don't put me off and I'm in my 40s. So is alienation really really that uh, scary a prospect? It depends what it is. Um, if you look at what Apple are doing, um, they, they want to be for everybody. And so if they position themselves correctly, they tell the story correctly, then they're talking as much to you as they're talking to the millennial. Um, and so it's about finding the right elevation, the right, the right altitude, of message and that that resonates with everybody 
in B2B, you often have much more, um, much smaller and more defined specialist audiences, which makes it much more difficult. Uh, the B2B Institute suggests that about 50% of your budget should go towards brand building and 50% to sales activation. This does change depending on the category, obviously. How is this applied at SimilarWeb? Yeah, and I think this is like the holy grail. A number of times I've had this conversation with people um, as how much money should we be spending of the total marketing budget for A, B, and C activities. I think it really depends on the stage of your business, what your marketing objectives are, where you are. So it's not just about the category, although that is obviously important, but it's also about where you are in your growth. I would say that, uh, what did you say, 50% of budget towards brand and 50% towards sales activation. Um, sales activation is an interesting one. That's assuming it's an enterprise play rather than uh, a kind of a, um, a self-serve type online play. So I think the B2B Institute perhaps needs to be a little bit more nuanced with the percentages. Um, I wouldn't say it's that easy. I think at SimilarWeb at the moment, we're probably spending more than 50% of our marketing budget on brand building because that's where we've got to. So we have product market fit. We have an excellent range of customers across multiple industries. We're really strong in a number of industries across the world. Um, we're now in a real scale phase. And so a lot of it is around awareness of our brand, positioning ourselves based on where we are and where we're really strong in the market. And so we're probably spending, I don't actually know, um, but we're probably spending more than 50% on brand building at the moment. Um, but last year, it would have been different. The year before that, it would have been different, et cetera, et cetera. So it's so dependent on where you are and what your objectives are. Got it. Makes sense. And that brings us to our rapid fire round where I'm just going to throw some quick questions at you and you can uh, respond from your gut if that's okay. Are you ready? Yep. Okay. Number one, advertising or ABM? Advertising or ABM. So ABM, um, absolutely for large enterprise selling. So if you're if you're selling large contracts to a small number of companies, relatively speaking, so if you're targeting 100 organizations with a, you know, 100,000 to a million pound deal size, then ABM every day of the week, because it allows you to get much closer to that small list of customers that you want to sell to. Um, if you're going broader than that, um, and you've got a kind of a breadth brand play advertising every day. Logic or magic? Magic. Um, because, especially up front, because once you've sprinkled the magic, you've got someone's attention, then you can apply the logic as per the, um, the story we had, the, the conversation we had before. Absolutely. And brand building or lead generation? You have to do both. If you don't do lead generation, you're going to die because you need to sell and you need to drive revenue. Brand building, incredibly important and... Um, should really be the long-term objective if lead generation is the short-term objective. So there's a balance to, to get there. Uh, and what's the problem with B2B right now? I think B2B is improving. Um, the problem is that B2B don't, when don't, B2B organizations don't see their audiences as humans, as emotional people. And how would Don Draper fix that problem? I think he'd fix the problem by focusing on storytelling. So understanding the hero, getting the emotional connection, buying them into the story, and then realizing that that is going to have the impact on the human being that they're marketing to. And if you could tell all CEOs to read one book, what would that be? If it was one book on marketing, it would be Story Brand by Donald Miller. 
Good shout. And finally, then, what is your favorite Don Draper moment? Uh, so there's a quote um, advertising is based on one thing happiness. And of course, what that says is, you know, it's the emotion that you're going for. It's the, the human emotion of happiness in this case. Identify that emotion, lead with it, and advertising is based on that. And all it leaves me to do now is say thanks to James McCarthy for a really insightful, fun chat, uh, looking into storytelling and all things uh, in that direction. Really enjoyed speaking with you and learning more about your philosophy. Thanks, Stuart. Thanks for inviting me along. I'm Stuart Black. See you next time on B2B Needs Don Draper. Bye.